0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris getting His Saturdays. This program is being pre recorded for Saturday, June 19th, 2021. Right now it is Wednesday morning, and once again we are here with our friend TruthFids to discuss his 100 Proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 41 of this series which is actually taking a lot longer than I thought to to complete, as we're not even anywhere near completion. But that's fine if it takes 100 podcasts to do 100 proofs. That's what we're here for. In our last few presentations in the series, we have already discussed many aspects of Jacob and Esau in Prophecy. There and earlier in the series, we had also discussed how it was that many of the Judeans of the time of Christ were actually Edomites and not Israelites. We also discussed the first two chapters of the prophecy of Malachi at length and how Malachi begins with a comparison of Jacob and Esau before spending the rest of those two chapters admonishing the priests for their corruption of the priesthood. That is not a coincidence. Without a doubt, Malachi helps to put into a biblical perspective, a proper biblical perspective, both the history of the period and the composition of the people of Judea as it was recorded by Flavius Josephus and mentioned by Strabo of Cappadocia. And also puts into perspective the contention between Christ and his adversaries as it was recorded in John chapter 8. This, in turn, is all supported by the explanation of the divisions among the Judeans by Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 9, where he compared Jacob and Esau and cited the opening verses of Malachi. Now we shall see the nature and characteristics of Esau, which are evident in the New Testament. All of this background history is seen to fulfill the words of Isaac in the blessings which he granted to both Jacob and Esau, and the related circumstances which we see in the accounts of the lives of those patriarchs in the book of Genesis. The background history as well as the prophecy, is also the only valid way in which to view the cause of the divisions among first century Judeans in respect to Christ, and that is also the explanation of the Apostles themselves. Hello Truthvids, thank you once again for being here.
1: Hey Bill, thanks for me. Yes, yeah, so here we're going to continue uh, all, all about Esau and uh, identifying that essentially it's it's the Jews, right? And that in the Old Testament you you have, um, you know, all this contention between the Israelites and the Edomites that they won't let them in and then uh, that David enslaved yeah. them and then they eventually they come and return and destroy the temple and, and then they kind of just seem to disappear, right? And they're not really mentioned again and, and in the New Testament, poof they're just gone and and understand who they are or where they are and that they are actually identified and here we can go over it and show that it certainly is the jews and and especially all these um you know rich billionaires they are that that dragon that's um essentially leading the jews and um all all the non-white races to destroy us and once you understand that you know as as i said in the previous um intros to the last proofs everything falls into place you understand what's going on why they're doing it that essentially they're, they're just following the same path that the uh fallen angels did messing with creation trying to mix it all and they are the descendants of the fallen angels and they're just following what what their uh creators what their fathers did right they're trying to corrupt the adamic creation as well and and Uh, The Israelites are all that's left, so now they're coming after us, right, Bill?
0: Absolutely, And, and what's important to understand about the New Testament period is that not only were the Edomites, not only did the Edomites comprise a majority of the Judeans, but they were in charge by the time of Christ. Herod was an Edomite, as we're going to discuss today, and even Josephus said that as soon as Herod was appointed king by the Romans, he began to um, to appoint high priests who were not even qualified to be priests. He he chose men of his own choosing to be high priest. The hereditary office of high priest was done away with by the powers that be, the Romans and, and Herod. They had no care for that. They wanted to use the office of high priest for political purposes, so they appointed men who would be amenable to their desires. And, and that's the way it stood all throughout the, the period from the time that Herod became king, which happened, I think, between 40 and 36 BC, in there somewhere, and the destruction of Jerusalem. It endured throughout that entire period. Most of the high priests of the time from Herod on were actually of the party of the Sadducees. And, and they didn't even believe the scripture. They didn't believe anything spiritual about the scripture. The Sadducees, according to Josephus' descriptions, and, and this is evident in the same... Um, in, in remarks which the New Testament writers made about the Sadducees, they didn't believe that God had any care for what happened to men. That They were almost atheists, except that at the time you really couldn't profess to be an atheist. So so they went along with believing or, or professing that there was a God. They just didn't ha- think that God had any um, concern for... The acts of men. And they didn't believe there were any consequences for the actions of men in any afterlife because they didn't believe in the spirit or an afterlife. So the Sadducees, those people, they were like the democratic po- progressives of today who, who, who were controlling but really didn't believe in, in consequences for sin.
1: Yeah, and and in a way, it's kind of true because God doesn't care about them, but but He does care about us, right? Well, but, well, right, absolutely.
0: Yet, they're just devils.
1: Yeah, and, and also it's interesting how that they managed to seize power, and now they've done the exact same thing, right? They've gradually wrestled their way with with their banks and usury, and gained control over Christendom now, and only Christ could, um, you know, come and expose them then. And then when he returns, he'll do it again, but this time he'll, he'll get rid of them once for all for it.
0: Well, well, right, but that's the most important part of understanding that this process in history, and, and it's so evident in the New Testament, once you properly identify the parties and understand the background history, it's so evident that this same pattern is happening or is already happened today in our modern society, and it's the same actors on every side. It doesn't change. So understanding what goes on in in the New Testament and why it went on and who the players were gives perfect understanding to our circumstances in the world today and And it can 't be denied once it 's seen you can 't unsee it, and once it 's seen you can 't deny it it 's crystal clear it 's incredible so with this we 're going to begin a discussion of the nature of Esau in the new testament and and this is proof number fifty three and and while it's not an explicit proof by itself this proof contains many proofs by itself it it's there's many proofs contained within it such as the identify uh, identity of the magi which is where we're going to start because these magi rejoiced when when they heard that the christ child was going to be born in contrast to the people of jerusalem who immediately wanted to kill him <laughs> So right away, their true Bolshevik nature comes out right in the beginning of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, there was an account of certain Magi who had come from the East, which is almost certainly the Parthian Empire, as the Magi were a priestly caste found among the Medes, And, and in some Bible translations This word magi is translated into wise man, or in the plural, wise men. So, when we mention magi, it's not a Greek word. Magi, magus, they're not Greek words. They're words that came from the Persians. And they were used to describe this priestly class by the Persians And early Greeks recognized that, and Herodotus was one of those Greeks, so we'll be citing Herodotus. These Magi certainly came from the Parthian Empire, as the Magi were a priestly caste found among the Medes, in the words of the 5th century BC Greek historian Herodotus. Now the Parthians had a hand. The Parthians were struggling with the Romans, in the first century, for control over portions of Armenia, Mesopotamia, and the politics and involvement across each side of the Euphrates River was very frequent. When the Romans had backed Herod to be king, the Parthians were trying to get and Antigonus installed as the king of Judea. They had an interest in Judea, and the Judeans, the Hasmonians, often appealed to the Parthians for their assistance, but the Romans and Herod ultimately won out, and Herod remained as king of Judea. The Parthians could never cross the Euphrates and defeat the Romans militarily, even if they defended themselves against the Romans very frequently when the Romans tried to attack the Parthians. So that's a long story, but it's a digression. But my point is that the Parthians were well aware of Judea. They're mentioned frequently and and what was going on in Judea, and they're mentioned frequently in the pages of Flavius Josephus for this very period. So Parthia is not some far-off, remote place that people only fantasized about. It was a real empire right across the Euphrates River that had a lot of power and exerted that power whenever they could west of the Euphrates. I digress. It is likely that these Magi were descendants of the ancient Israelites, many of whom had been resettled by the Assyrians in the cities of the Medes. And we know that from both Assyrian inscriptions and the biblical accounts found in Second Kings 17 and 18. Herodotus had also written in his histories in Book 1, that the Magi were a tribe or race among the Medes, and that these Medes were called anciently by all people Arians. So we see that the Magi came from ancient media. And even if the words of Herodotus do not prove conclusively that they were ancient Israelites, of whom Herodotus seemed to be ignorant, he really didn't know anything about the ancient Israelites. The fact that these Magi were awaiting a Messiah in Israel around this time certainly does make that indication. There is no doubt, however, that being Medes, they were white men. Media was an ancient nation. It was an independent nation, even though it was often allied with Persia against the Babylonians or against the Assyrians, against the Greeks, Media was an ancient nation in what we know today as far northern Iraq and bordering the Caspian Sea. It sort of faded into oblivion in the Hellenistic period, first under the Persian Empire, where it just was absorbed into Persia, and then in the Hellenistic period. Media more or less disappeared from having any influence in history.
1: Yeah, yeah, Bill. Right? Why would um, the Medes care about Israel or have any kind of prophecy of, um, you know, a Messiah coming? You know, they had nothing to do with the land of Israel. It wouldn't make sense unless they were Israelites, right?
0: Well, absolutely. And if we go into the Hellenistic period and read Diodorus Siculus or Strabo of Cappadocia, who's also called Strabo the Geographer because the significant work of his which survived, is the geography. He also wrote a history of Assyria which has not survived history, which did we know about it, but it has not survived to us. So Strabo was actually from Cappadocia. He was a Greek from Cappadocia and a very learned man and a very prolific writer, however, sadly, half of his work or or more, it is lost to time. But Strabo and Diodorus and other writers of the period will tell you in their descriptions of that area, um, modern-day Armenia and eastern Turkey and northern Iraq and northern Syria is the area we're concerned with here. They'll tell you that Scythians were the predominant groups there in their time. Now, those Scythians were and and can be related to the ancient Israelites of the Assyrian captivities. They didn't all migrate around the Black Sea and into Europe. Some of them did later. I, I mean... If we look at the Germanic literature, Odin came from Asa in what was probably the second or third centuries AD and into Northern Europe. He led his people from Asa, which is Roman Asia, and we have the Aesir, which are the Germanic people who came from Asa, and we have the Vanir, which seems to be the Germanic people which migrated into Europe from Lake Van, which is a little further to the east. And in those places were the children of Israel settled by the Assyrians after the Assyrian deportations of the Israelites. So there's more evidence than that to connect the Germanic people to the Scythians of the Caucasus mountain regions. But in the first century BC, first century AD, the Caucasus mountain regions and what we know today is Armenia, northern Iraq and eastern Turkey and northern Syria, Medes and Assyrians were not the dominant group any longer in those regions. It was Scythians who were the dominant group. These Magi, the the Parthians themselves were descendants of the ancient Israelites. They had conquered the Persians. They were not Persians. And that can be established from the pages of Flavius Josephus and from other sources, which we've already done in in our own essays on the origins of the Germanic people. So it, it seems to be that these Medes, that these Magi, who had to be from the Parthian Empire, were actually descendants of the ancient Israelites. But that's a circumstantial identification. It, it, but it's the only identification that makes sense because the Medes themselves, as you said, wouldn't have any such prophecy. Yahweh's word was only revealed to the children of Israel. So how would they get such a prophecy that there would be born a king in Judah? the king of the Jews, as he's called in the New Testament, that there would be called a, born a king in Judah at this very time. How else would they have that information? There's no other way by which they could have that information. So going back to the Magi, in medieval art, all three Magi, all three of these wise men, were continuously depicted as having been white men. Before the 15th century, I don't think anybody in Europe would have imagined that they were anything but white. But in, 15th, in the 15th century, some, not all, some Italian and Dutch artists, because that was the time that the Muslim and the African world began to become open to European trade, exploration and colonization, Some Italian and Dutch artists began depicting one of the Magi as a Negro, or sometimes elements of the Magi and their entourage as Negroes or as Arabs. And we have an article about that with a display of all of the medieval art of the Magi at Christigenia, and it's titled, Who Painted the Wise Man Black? Who Made the Magas? Magus is the singular form of the word Magi, who made the Magus a Negro, because it's ridiculous to assume that any of these wise men, any of these Magi, were black. But the artists of the period, the 15th century, were divided, and many of them continued to portray all of the Magi as white, which is historically accurate, since they must have come from ancient Parthia. Ancient Parthia was white, and it was never Arabized, it was never turned Arab, until after the Muslim conquests of the 7th century AD, 700 years after Christ. Generally speaking, because I'm not going to say there was never a nigger in Parthia before then, but generally speaking, Negroes were introduced into the Middle East and the Near East from the time of the Muslim conquests, and they were introduced by Arabs, as the Arabs had employed blacks from Africa, Nubians and other Negroes, as soldiers and as servants, whether or not they were slaves. A lot of them were not slaves. A lot of them were set free or, or were free men who, who were um employed by Arab armies, or Arab kings, or sheiks, if you want to call them that. So in Matthew chapter 2, when the Magi came to Jerusalem, it was because they understood the time of the birth of the Messiah from the appearance of a certain star, evidently from some ancient knowledge which is not recorded in the Old Testament as we know it. The Magi, being joyful of this, must have expected the Judeans in Jerusalem to also be joyful. But, as we read in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 2, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. From there, Herod had only sought to find and to kill the child, and he is recorded as having killed many children in the region when he could not find the specific infant whom he sought. In contrast, we read of the Magi, that departing from Herod to seek the child, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, and when they were come into the house meaning that they found the child. Now, this child is probably a year or two old by this time. It's Christ is not, by the time the Magi find the Christ child, he's not a little infant in a manger any longer. Now, Joseph and Mary, are; they actually have a house in Bethlehem. So, it's a year or two after the birth of Christ. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, frankincense and myrrh are products of Arabia, generally, which the Parthian Empire would have access to in trade. And they actually did control portions of Arabia at this time. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. So Herod had never learned from them the location of the child whom he sought to destroy. So we read later in a chapter from verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, he was mocked because they disregarded his demands to inform him as to where the child was, and and they disappeared, was exceedingly wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, because it's possible the child was as old as two years according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. The Christ child survived because he had already been brought to Egypt by his parents, having been warned by God. So we must ask if the Magi and others in Judea had anticipated and rejoiced at the prospect of the birth and coming of the Messiah. Something which is apparent throughout the New Testament that many Judeans had anticipated. Why would Herod be so troubled and all Jerusalem with him?
1: And it'd be the same today, right, Bill? Um, If Christ was going to return, they'd all be terrified, uh, all the Jews right now. So it's the same, exactly the same.
0: Exactly. Because they would know that they're going to be thrown down from the positions of power and authority and of wealth and possessions, which they have gained for themselves. A political advantage, which they have gained for themselves through their control of the media, their control of finance, because in the Middle Ages, Christians didn't loan money at usury. The Jews have controlled finance ever since because Jews were happy to loan money at usury and to make themselves bankers. It's not that they have financial acumen, it, it's that they have no morals, and it was immoral for Christians to loan money at usury throughout the entire Christian period. That's a different topic. These Jews, through that alone, have built up massive amounts of wealth for themselves And by the 18th century, 19th century, had come to totally control the newspaper and news agency medias that were media which were developing in Europe and in the United States. And they've controlled it ever since. They've controlled Hollywood from its inception. They've controlled radio from its invention. They've been in control of the networks using that their control of the banks to leverage that in order to control much of our industry and especially the media and every vehicle that they could use to control public opinion, which is why most Americans and, and most white Christians believe that the Jews are God's chosen people because they've controlled the media and they've repeated that incessantly when actually the Jews are a cursed people. And the New Testament spells that out very plainly, that they're a cursed people. That's why we believe that there was a Holocaust. That's why we believe that Nazi Germany was evil. When it certainly wasn't evil, it was a good Christian nation and Christian men standing up for their own right to self-determination, which happened to stand in the way of the British Empire, which the Jews were using as a vehicle to gain and, and to control more of the world's wealth. And these are the same Edomite bastards who killed Christ, without a doubt. And if we'd see the pattern in the New Testament, we'd understand the pattern better today. So, I'm sorry, that's a long digression. The question, why Herod and all Jerusalem were in fear, that question is answered in the pages of Flavius Josephus. Herod by this time was already quite old. In fact, he was about to die. And he had been king of Judea under the Romans for over 30 years. An infant thought by the Magi to have been born king would have been no real threat to Herod, at least for a long time. Josephus informs us, however, that Herod was an Edomite, and therefore he was not an Israelite. The Roman conquest of Judea, which I think began about 63 B.C., maybe a little sooner, the Roman conquest of Judea was quite tumultuous, and well over 20 years of rebellion on the part of the Judeans ensued. Herod, whose father was an Edomite and a general in the Judean army, was married into the Hasmonean dynasty, the dynasty of the high priests. But he turned against his wife's family and sided with the Romans for his own advantage. Ultimately, he ingratiated Antony, Mark Antony, and Julius Caesar, and offered bribes in order to be made king. So when Herod was made king, discussing the circumstances of that event and its aftermath, Josephus, writing in Antiquities, book 14, about the reaction of Antigonus, who was one of the last surviving Hasmoneans, had written in part, But Antigonus, by way of reply to what Herod had caused to be proclaimed, and this before the Romans, and before Silo also, said that they would not do justly if they gave the kingdom to Herod who is no more than a private man, and an Edunian, in other words, a half-Jew, i.e., in the translation, a half-Jew, whereas they ought to bestow it on one of the royal family, as their custom was, for that in case they at present bear an ill will to him, and had resolved to deprive him of the kingdom as having received it from the Parthians. The Judeans had had turned to the Parthians often to help resolve their disputes. And Antigonus, being one of the Hasmoneans, and I believe he was also the high priest at the time, hereditary high priest, the Parthians had helped to establish him over Judea, and the Romans were taking that away and giving it to Herod. So Josephus continues, Yet were there many others of his family that might, by their law, take it. Other Levitical priests from the Hasmonean dynasty were still alive. And these, such as had no way, offended the Romans. Not all of them took part in the rebellions against Rome. And being of the priestly family, it would be an unworthy thing to pass them by. So that was the argument presented by Josephus of this Antigonus against Herod's having been made high king, when at the time there were still many Hasmoneans still alive. However, when Herod became king, he had most of them killed so that there wouldn't be any competition for him. He had most of the Hasmoneans, every single one that he could, he had killed. And he even had his own sons by Maryam killed. Maryam was his wife, and she was the daughter of one of the Hasmoneans. She was the niece of the high priest at the time when he married her. And the Hasmoneans permitted this Edomite to marry one of their daughters. So Herod had several sons with her. He had her killed, and he had all of his children with her killed. And he did that as he was being made king by the Romans, or shortly after. I really don't remember. It may have been shortly after. But he had them all killed. And his sons who came to inherit his position and office, they were from other wives, He had several sons by several otherwise. So, in the pages of Josephus, Herod was not considered a half-Jew because because any of his ancestors were Judeans. Rather, he was considered as a half-Jew because he was a convert. In Antiquities, book 14... Josephus had spoken of Herod's father, whose name was Antipater, and speaking of a time around 70 BC, he wrote But there was a certain friend of Hyrcanus, an Edumian called Antipater, who was very rich, and in his nature an active and seditious man. Sounds like a Jew to me. Who was at enmity with Aristobulus, and had differences with him on account of his goodwill to Hyrcanus. Now, this is not John Hyrcanus. This is Hyrcanus II. He was the son of Alexander Janius, who ruled Jerusalem as high priest after him, or, or I should say by this time, Judea, because the Hasmoneans were ruling most of what we know later as Judea, and they were independent of Rome until the Romans came and conquered Judea shortly after this time. So later in the same book, Josephus wrote of Antipater, and he said, that he was at that time in great repute with the Edumians, also. The Edomians were a major party at this time in Judea. They had all been converted to Judaism, and they were functioning as a faction, and, and they were actually a majority faction, even though they didn't rule. In this nation that was cobbled together by these Hasmoneans, where all of the people that were inhabiting the ancient land of Israel and Judah were forcibly converted to Judaism. And the greater number of them were Edomites. So Josephus notes that that their influence where he says that Antipater, who was an Edomian, he was an Edomite, was at that time in great repute with the Edomians also. Out of which nation... He married a wife who was the daughter of one of their eminent men, and her name was Cyprus, by whom he had four sons Phasael, Herod's older brother, and Herod, who was afterward made king, and Joseph and Pheroras, and a daughter named Salome. And these two names, Herod and Salome, occur over and over again in the Herodian family, for the next several generations, and probably beyond that. So there were many men named Herod who were of this family. That There was Herod Archelaus, there was Herod Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa II, Herod Antipas, and the Agrippas and Herod Antipas are all mentioned in the New Testament. Herod Antipas is the Herod to whom Christ was sent when he was the governor of Galilee at the time. So all these men named Herod and all these women named Salome. That the um I believe the daughter of the Herod who wanted the head who, who who demanded the head of John the Baptist, her name was Salome or her mother's name was Salome, perhaps both their names were Salome. <laughs> We see these same names repeated over and over again, and it really gets confusing as to which Herod or which Siloam is being spoken of when you read even the histories of Josephus. It has to be sorted out. So that's the nature of the family of Herod, and his father was an Edomian, according to Josephus, and his mother was an Edomian, and Josephus has all the details of who these people are of who these people are that now there are other testimonies in antiquities and also in book one of the wars of the judeans and elsewhere that herod was a full edomite by blood
1: and and bill all that um goodwill he was supposedly showing to hyacanus clearly it was just uh, manipulation just pretending to be nice to earn his favor right just like um Jews did to uh, nobles and kings in the medieval period, right?
0: Well, well right, absolutely. He was ingratiating the Hasmoneans. He got his son married into the Hasmonean family, which gave his son Herod a lot of notoriety uh, among the Judeans, that he was married to one of their leaders, the daughter of one of their leaders, and then Herod turned his back on the Hasmoneans He literally stabbed them all in the back and bribed the Romans with money that he got. He he didn't make the money of himself. He got all this wealth from the position that he used, the position that his father gained for him by ingratiating the Hasmoneans. So he used this money to bribe the Romans and be made king, and then he wiped them out. He had all the principal men <coughs> of Jerusalem who, who were principal men from, from the Hasmonean rulership and the Hasmonean family, and he had them all destroyed so that he would be secure and without competition in his, in, in his position as king.
1: And, and that's exactly what they did with all the um, revolutions in Europe. They went around and wiped out all the nobles and, and kings and, and all that, right? It, the Absolutely. ones they hadn't intermarried with.
0: Absolutely. That's what they did in the French Revolution. That's what they did in, in, in the Bolshevik Revolution. That's what they did when the communists, when the Bolshevik Jews took over Poland and, and the, na- the other neighboring nations. That's what the Caton Massacre was all about, but when they destroyed thousands of Polish army officers, that's why they did it, so that they would have no threat to their control of Poland. That's typically what Jews do when they come to power. There's other ways they've done that in America at diverse times on a much smaller scale, but they're slowly doing it here. So in Revelation chapter 12, we see a description of this same Herod and his attempt to kill the Christ child. And it says, and I'm going to read a large portion of it, perhaps eight or nine verses, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And this vision has actually multiple interpretations and multiple layers of meaning, but we're going to focus here on Herod. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Now, that relates the dragon to all of the world empires, which are actually prophesied in a very similar manner elsewhere in the Revelation, and also in the book of the prophet Daniel. So, to continue. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And a dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with the rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So right there we see that this child has to be a reference to Christ, a description of Christ. It can't be any other child that's spoken of here. And a woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now there's multiple valid interpretations of this imagery and one is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but another one is that it's speaking about something which happened in very ancient times, which happened even before the woman ever had the child, so that a representative of this dragon is there when the child is born. Here it is evident that this entity, which is called that old serpent, called the devil and Satan. So the entity is that old serpent, and the entity is called the devil and Satan. It's evident that this entity is a collective entity which transcends the narrow context of ancient Judea, and which has endured throughout a great length of past history. All the way back to the days of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, That's how this is identified as this old serpent. It's not called this old serpent. It's identified as this old serpent, which is called the devil and Satan. So originally it was the serpent, the old serpent, a reference to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. So Herod is not the great red dragon himself. But Herod, the Edomite, was a representative of that dragon. And through Herod was fulfilled the role of he who had stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Only Herod had fulfilled that role. So in that regard, this must be a reference to him. But overall, it does not describe him alone. Collectively, the Edomite Jews, of which Herod was one, had throughout history fulfilled the role where it says later on in this chapter, from verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. That woman, first seen clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars, represents the collective 12 tribes of Israel, which is also a vision very similar to Joseph's vision of his brothers in Genesis chapter 37 where he saw his brothers and his parents as the sun moon and 11 stars joseph would be the 12 who were paying obeisance to him which happened as joseph was the what was an official in egypt and his brothers had come to egypt
1: do you, the, do you think uh i'm sorry British Israel, but that the whole British Empire thing, do you think it's a possible foreshadowing that one day that that would happen, that they would gain the power eventually and rule the world?
0: Well, well I mean, that the British Empire was a vehicle which Jewry had used in England to ultimately take control of the world for themselves. And they did that. Yeah. They did that through, through their banking and, and the power of finance, which they had in England. They ultimately did that by promoting democracy, parliamentary democracy over the monarchy and, and the nobility. And at the same time, they were intermarrying with the nobility so that the Jews became the nobility of England. They've intermarried so heavily with it that now most of the nobles are Jews. But England was only one vehicle, one vessel, that they used America later in that same way. But even before England, that they had used Prussia, that they had used Holland, they had used the Dutch to do the same thing. And they were bankers in Amsterdam before they were bankers in England. And before they moved on to Amsterdam, they were using the Spanish Empire, And and Jews were behind a lot of the the expansion in Spain and and the colonialism and and what um, perceived atrocities had taken place or the wars that were caused by Spanish and Portuguese colonialism. And and then the wars with the French and and the, the English and the Dutch and all the competition because Jews were actually pitting one nation against another, or the Jews themselves were divided in each nation against the others. So, so, I mean, Jews have never, they've always operated in the same, with the same methods, but they themselves have never been entirely united. And, and there were Jewish interests on the part of Spain against the English, and there were Jewish interests on, on the part of France against the English, while the Jews were at the same time in the city of London having great influence and and the power of the purse, the, the power of finance over the English. So if you look at the emancipation of the Jews, that was actually pushed by Napoleon, by a Frenchman. The Jews were already emancipated in England, for the most part, from the time of Cromwell. They could do what they wanted from the time of Cromwell. They had virtually no restrictions. So it's a complicated story. But yeah, there were Jews behind all of the expansions of colonialism because it was all done for commercial gain and commercial ventures, especially the English expansions. The Spanish were seeking gold. The English were seeking to control world trade. So they established all of these companies, which were stock market companies and invested by these bankers, invested in by these bankers as overseas enterprises, commercial enterprises, the Virginia Company, the British East India Company. They were doing this in, in the first century BC. Jews were in Rome acting as usurers. And, and engaging all, all over the Roman world in, in commerce. There's nothing new under the sun. This persecution, when the dragon saw he was cast into earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. The early Christian writers, Tertullian and Medusius Felix, and there were only two that I'm citing, both of whom had written in the 3rd century, had directly blamed the Jews for the persecution of Christians by the Romans. And the New Testament portrays that very same thing in the book of Acts and in the epistles of Paul. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul wrote speaking of them and said it was they who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and had persecuted us and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, or the nations, the nations of Israel, that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. Now the same Paul of Tarsus had written, in Acts chapter 26, verses 6 and 7, that his efforts were being made on behalf of the 12 tribes of Israel. But these Jews in Judea are not 12 tribes. They're only a portion of Judah and and a smaller portion of Benjamin and Levi mixed in with these Edomites. Now, in that passage I just read, the King James Version has their own prophets. Not the prophets. And that is not true. It is a proven interpolation in later manuscripts. In all of the oldest manuscripts, it only says that they killed the prophets, not their own prophets, because the prophets didn't belong to the Edomites. Three times in his gospel, in chapters 7, 19, and 20. The Apostle John mentioned the fact that certain men were afraid to speak of Christ for fear of the Jews. But the hatred which these Jews had for Christianity was far greater than the immediate circumstances in Judea. As in Acts chapter 22, which took place at least 20 years after the resurrection of christ the jews are portrayed as wanting to kill paul of tarsus as soon as he declared to them that he would bring the gospel of christ to distant nations that's in acts chapter 22 verses 21 and 22 nations which were also descended from of the 12 tribes of israel as Paul later attested before Herod Agrippa II in Acts chapter 26, in verses 6 and 7. But even in Judea, in the time of Christ, language was employed by John the Baptist, and then by Christ himself, which described their adversaries in the same manner which we see in the Revelation. As serpents, as vipers, as a race of serpents, as the offspring of serpents or vipers, and with other related terms. Then in John chapter 8, when Christ told his adversaries that they were not true children of Abraham, they responded by saying, we being not born of fornication, we have one father, even God and that's found in John chapter 8:41 chapter 8 verse 41 and that's a fulfillment of Malachi chapter 2 where the corrupted priests are portrayed as having asked have we not all one father has not one god created us but the answer was no because it went on to say that Judah married the daughter of a strange god So one God didn't create all of us. One God only created some of us. So the results of the struggle between Jacob and Esau for the birthright and the blessings, as if they could possibly be contended, are fully manifest in the New Testament between the Israelites of Judea and the Edomites of Judea, from whom are the modern Jews. I don't know if you have any comments.
1: Yeah, that they are they were always behind the persecutions and, and it's exactly the same now, right? It's is always Jews who are trying to get rid of Christianity. And what if people understood this and went back to this these verses then they would understand why because they're essentially bastards uh descended from Cain that that they're not adamic and, and that they just hate Christ, that they hate the truth. And, and they just want to live their perverted way. They don't want to live in a moral, just society, right, at all.
0: Well, well right. And, and this is amazing. The church doesn't understand it today, or they pretend not to understand it today. When Christ told these Judeans that they were not true children of Abraham, when he told the Judeans that God was not their father, They responded by saying, we be not born of fornication. They knew that he was accusing them of having been race mixed, of being bastards. That's why they made that protest. We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. But the truth is that they were Edomites, and therefore, from the circumstances of Esau's own marriages... They certainly were born of fornication. They may not have understood that. They may have believed that their own circumstances of their own origins and birth were legitimate. But the scripture proves that it was not legitimate. Because Esau married Canaanite women. So that old serpent from the Garden of Eden is called the devil and Satan. And as an entity... It is associated throughout the New Testament with the Edomite Jewish adversaries of Christ and the apostles. First, before we, because we're going to get into a little Old Testament background, first we're going to repeat some more New Testament statements in that regard. So, to this, we must compare Revelation chapter 20, which describes Satan as gathering. All the nations from the four corners of the earth against the camp of the saints. And to that we must also compare the prophecies in Isaiah chapter 34 and in Obadiah, which we have already compared, where the indignation of Yahweh is against all nations, but in which Edom is the central focus of his wrath. And we discussed all of these things in our last presentation of these 100 proofs. We actually went through those prophecies in Isaiah and Obadiah and compared them to Revelation chapter 20. Therefore, Esau, the collective of his Edomite descendants, represents the Satan of Revelation chapter 20. Throughout history, there is no other possible fulfillment of all these circumstances. It was Edomite Jews who who were responsible for persecuting early Christians in both the Middle East and in Europe, and it was Edomite Jews who developed Islam and had then brought the Arabs in the name of Islam to conquer the Christian lands of North Africa, Spain, Portugal, parts of Italy, and the whole Middle East and ultimately also the Near East, when they conquered Persia. It was Edomite Jews in Khazaria who brought the Turks from Asia, who were also converted to Islam against the Christians of the Byzantine Empire. Now today, there are the same Edomite Jews, who have admittedly been at the vanguard of non-white immigration, from all of the nations of the four corners of the earth into all of the formerly white Christian nations. And I call them formerly white. They're marginally white right now. This is the serpent making war with the remnant of the seed of the woman as it is described in Revelation chapter 12, that same chapter, a little later on in verse 17, and it says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Whenever you see... In the Christian era, wars and invasions against the people that have the testimony of Jesus Christ, you see the dragon being wroth with the woman. And whenever you see or investigate the history behind those invasions, you'll see that the Jews are behind them all. The Edomite Jews are behind every invasion, and they were behind all the wars of later Europe.
1: Bill, do you think that the Turks could have originally been Scythians who went a bit too far east and mongrelized and then raised mongrels, uh, you know, raised bastards uh, and taught them, you know, to hunt and be on horses? And eventually they came back as, uh, well, Turks.
0: Yes, the actual origins of the Turks, how they actually came into being is very murky. I lean towards the fact that they were mongolized Chinese who because they were mongolized had begun to migrate west. And they may not have been Chinese specifically, but some sort of yellow oriental bastard originally. And as they and they were mongolized and as they moved west, they became more and more mongrelized. So that by the time they made it, by by the time they came into Baghdad, I believe they crossed the Tigris river and came into Baghdad, which was a Persian city and conquered it. And I think that was in the 11th century, if I'm not mistaken, it might've been a 10th. I think it was the 11th and, somehow they were all Muslims, these Turks. They converted to Islam. Now, it must have been Jews that did that. That's my opinion. But that's besides the point. It's not a coincidence that they had the same religion, more or less, as these Arab bastards in Arabia who were basically converted to Islam by Jews. Islam was developed by Jews. Muhammad himself, he was at least half a Jew, and it's this speculation he may have been a Jew on both sides of his family. Muhammad employed Jewish scribes. Jewish scribes wrote the Quran, wrote that supposed holy book, which is really no more valuable than a Jewish pulp novel, but it's been used to control over half the population of the world for, for, for many centuries now. Well, well, Jews wrote that book. It's borrowed heavily from, not really from the Old Testament, but it borrows more heavily from Jewish apocryphal literature, which is some of it's actually Hebrew or Israelite, and much of it's Jewish. And, and it, many parts of it read just like the Talmud reads, where it's very legalistic and controlling. It's a lot like the Pharisee. I've read parts of the Quran. I really don't want to get into this, but I've read parts of the Quran which regulate how a man urinates so that he doesn't splash urine on himself and make himself unclean. And that is so much like the Talmud. And it's so much like the Edomite Jews and their traditions of the elders, where, where Christ basically upbraided them for, for their... um. They're striving to wash everything before a man eats. It says in Mark chapter 7 that they required people to wash their hands from the elbow down before they eat. And, and the Pharisees had, had accosted Christ and asked him why his disciples didn't, eat, didn't wash their hands before they ate. Well, parts of the Quran read exactly like that so that you could see where it came from. It's pretty clear where it, can, it's, it contains a lot of the same legalistic regulations that the Talmud contains. There's no doubt it, it comes from essentially... people of the same spirit. The spirit of yeah, devils. Exactly. And it was... I'm sorry. Sorry, Bill. Go on.
1: Yeah, but... Um... Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was essentially to turn this complete mixture cesspool of um, hundreds of millions of Arab bastards into a legion, an army, and give them a motive to just go in and try and destroy Christianity or take over Europe, right? That was the whole idea.
0: And that's exactly what it did. That's precisely what it did, because when the Byzantine Empire... Adopted Christianity, when the Roman Empire I should say adopted Christianity, but it's Byzantine now because West the Western end of it fell apart. Theodosius I, Theodosius II, they began to make laws that were amenable to Christianity. So they barred usury. That put the Edomite Jews, that put a lot of them out of business right there. They prevented Jews from owning Christian slaves. They barred Jews from holding any public offices. So the Jews were more or less driven out of the empire. Not because the Byzantines physically drove them out, but because the Byzantines decided to create a a government that was amenable to Christianity, that actually practiced at least many elements of Christianity, keeping the commandments of God, and the testimony of Christ, so the Edomites went to Arabia, they went to Algeria, that they went everywhere they could to get away from the power of the Byzantines, that they went to an, and the northern coast of Africa had been pretty much controlled by the Vandals at that time, it, even though they were also subdued again by Justinian, I believe. Well, they went to Kazaria. And, and the, the Khazarian Jews, the Ashkenazi Jews, aren't Khazars. They're Edomites who converted the Khazars and race mixed with them so that they could intermarry with them, which is what they did. So, yeah, some of them might be Khazars in part, but they're basically Edomite Jewish bastards. Just like the darker Sephardic Jewish bastards have more Arab blood in them because they that were, they were brought the arabs into spain where they were living because they turned on the goths when the goths accepted christianity the visigoths of spain accepted christianity and and started to build a christian kingdom the jews didn't like it they went to north africa and arabia and and developed Islam and militarized the hordes of Arab bastards and infused them with this religious fervor that they invented, promises of 70 virgins and, and things like that, and used them as a weapon against North Africa. And after they conquered North Africa, because the Visigoths were developing a Christian kingdom in Spain, they invaded Spain to destroy the Visigoths. None of this, it is a coincidence. None of this represents just random events. This was all orchestrated by Jews to destroy Christian Europe and warned about right here in the Revelation. As we have also already explained here, In previous presentations, Paul of Tarsus had also used present tense verbs, where he described Satan in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he said, and because the verbs are translated correctly, I'm going to cite the Christian getting a New Testament, in the King James Version, some present tense verbs are translated into the past tense. It's very dishonest or into a future tense, which is also dishonest. So Paul said, you should not be deceived by anyone in any way, because if apostasy had not come first, meaning the apostasy already came, and the man of lawlessness been revealed, because the man of lawlessness was revealed by Jesus Christ in his gospel, in his ministry in Jerusalem, the son of destruction In Romans chapter 9, Paul of Tarsus equates the descendants of Esau to vessels of destruction. He who is opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship. And so, he is seated, present tense, in Paul's time. He is seated in the temple of of Yahweh, of God. Representing himself that he is a god. That's the high priest in Jerusalem. And Paul wrote this epistle around 51 AD. And that could be established with absolute surety to within one year. It may have been early 52 or late 50. But we'll say 51 AD, Paul is speaking in the present tense of those Sadducees who were the high priests in Jerusalem, do you not remember that yet being with you I had told these things to you? And you know that which now prevails, meaning prevailing in Paul's time, for him to be revealed in his own time. In other words, even though Christ revealed these things for us, Paul understood that men wouldn't understand them for quite some time. So he says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already operating, he prevailing only presently, until he should be out of the way. And then would lawless be revealed, because people don't get this yet. Christ already revealed them, as Paul said, but people still don't get it, and the churches still don't understand this, this difference between Israelites and Edomites. These people claiming to be God's chosen people today, but really they're children of the devil. They're literally children of the devil. And they're the descendants of Esau at the same time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already operating. He prevailing only presently until he should be out of the way. That's not yet been fulfilled. We're still awaiting that. And then will the lawless be revealed whom Prince Joshua, will, or the Lord Jesus, if you will, will destroy with the breath of his mouth and abolish at the manifestation of his presence, which Paul anticipated would be at any moment, but which hasn't come yet. And that's because Christ wants us to live as though it's at any moment. So Paul says, whose presence is in accordance with the operation of the adversary, which is how we translate the word for which the King James Version has Satan, which means adversary in Hebrew. In all power and signs of wonders of falsehood and in every trick of unrighteousness in those who are perishing because they accepted not the love of the truth for them to be preserved. This is the Satan, which Paul had said, would be crushed under the feet of the Romans, an event which would fulfill the messianic prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, it says that after the Messiah, the prince, would be cut off, the people of the prince would come and destroy the city. So Paul had correctly interpreted that prophecy of Daniel, because that is what happened 13 years after Paul wrote that epistle to the Romans, where Paul said in Romans chapter 16 that Satan would be crushed under your feet shortly. Paul wrote that in Romans chapter 16 in 57 AD. It happened in 70. It was completed in 70 AD. When Jerusalem was destroyed. So before the destruction of Jerusalem, we see from 1 Thessalonians I'm sorry, from Second Thessalonians chapter two, that the collective Satan had his abode in the Temple of Jerusalem. Then, over twenty five years after Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, Yahshua Christ had said in the Revelation. In the message to the church at Pergamos, found in Revelation chapter 2, that I know thy works, and where and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwells and therefore we see that the edomites after the destruction of jerusalem <laughs> had moved their operations to pergamus <laughs> in paul they're seated in the temple in the revelation in 96 ad that's 45 years after paul wrote thessalonians they're in pergamus and evidently the one other problem In the church at Pergamos, which was mentioned in that message, was the acceptance of fornication, something which is not far from every Jew.
1: So they just packed up and moved their base of operations, and and they've done that all throughout Europe, right? More for convenience, as you absolutely uh, built another bank when another white nation has come up
0: absolutely they were running banks out of the temple that's why christ kept running the bankers out of the temple he did that twice as it's recorded in john and the other gospels he did it once early in his ministry and again towards the end of his ministry he ran the bankers out of the temple so the Jews must have, at least in some number, because they all didn't go to Pergamos. A lot of them went to Babylon, where they later wrote the Talmud. But the Jews, at least a significant portion of them, must have gone to Pergamos and set up operations there. All of this symbolism in the New Testament, it's not random. it I, I mean, Christ and the apostles didn't use this language because it sounded cool, it's all purposeful. And it leads us back to the events which transpired in the Garden of Eden and Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where Yahweh had said to the serpent that I will put enmity between thee and a the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, or your descendants and her descendants. It shall bruise thy head, and now shall bruise his heel. So Paul of Tarsus, writing in 57 AD, had said to the Romans in those closing verses of his epistle that the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Then 13 years later, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, and perhaps as many, if you want to believe the account in Josephus, as 1.1 million Edomite Jews. But, if you want to believe the account In the historian Tacitus, it was only half a million Jews. And they destroyed other Judeans along with the Edomite Jews. But they did not destroy the Edomites completely. And they were already spread out well beyond Judea. After Jerusalem was destroyed, Jewish revolts against the Romans would occur twice again in the early 2nd century A.D., First, there was the Kidos War, which I think was about 117 to 120 A.D., and that was really significant. A lot of Romans were slaughtered by the Jews in Cyprus, in Alexandria, in Egypt, as well as in Palestine. And then after that, there was the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, which I think was about 125 or perhaps closer to 130 A.D. So these rebellions of, of, by the Jews against the Romans had actually gone on for at least another 65 years after the temple was
1: destroyed. Yeah, the Emperor Hadrian, he went and just slaughtered them all. An, another massacre, right? Well, imagine
0: what the Jews would be like today if he didn't. Imagine yeah. what the Jews would be like today if those 500,000 to a million Edomite Jews weren't destroyed in Jerusalem. Imagine what they'd be like today in their numbers and, and in their treachery if they weren't destroyed in, in large numbers in the Kidos War and the Bar Kokhba Rebellion.
1: So, so be... Evidently, um, that, that emperor, even though he doesn't understand it, Will uh, be a hero in heaven, even though he doesn't realize what he does. <laughs> Absolutely, he the time for our race. Him and Vespasian and
0: Titus. <laughs> it, if I, I mean the devils would have consumed the world a thousand years ago. If if these Edomites were were left unmolested at this time, look at what a small, a relatively small number of them, the remnant of them, was able to do after all these rebellions were over, and how they've infiltrated and perverted the whole world today. While a race of serpents is not described in that manner in any direct language of the Old Testament, the serpent of Genesis was also the representative of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just like Herod was a representative of the great red dragon. And reading the Revelation, it is not a stretch to see that the third of the angels which fell with Satan, with that old serpent, had become established, as there were also people outside of Adam, people whom Yahweh had not taken credit for having created. Cain was sent off to the land of Nod, and the land of Nod, the word Nod means means wandering, and it's also used as an allegory for sin. So the land of Wandering is outside of the Garden of Eden, and wandering is an allegory for sin. It's the land of sin. And there Cain found a wife, and he built a city. Later on in Genesis chapter 6, the Nephilim, or fallen ones, are described as having already been in the earth in those days. And... They commit race-mixing fornication with the daughters of Adam in Genesis chapter 6. They were already in the earth in those days. They weren't only the result of angel unions with, with the daughters of men. That's a Catholic fantasy. These were a race of people, these fallen angels, who were already in the earth in those days. And that's how... They came down to where the inhabitants, the descendants of Adam, to the place they were inhabiting and started taking their daughters. They do the same thing today in every suburb in America, and, and probably in Britain too, and in, in Europe. <laughs> They're doing the same thing. Even later, in Genesis chapter 15, we see that the descendants of Canaan and the Kenites who are the descendants of Cain, and the Rephaim, who are Nephilim, and and it's described in Scripture, I think it's in Numbers chapter 13, that the Rephaim are Nephilim, and several other races, which did not descend from Adam, are all living together in Palestine. In Genesis chapter 14, there was mentioned a people called Zuzim, and that's a name which means roving creatures. So it is apparent that they didn't even have a proper name. They're just called roving creatures, and and these are supposedly people. In extra-biblical sources, it is evident that the Rephaim, or Nephilim, also inhabit other lands in Mesopotamia, and they're kings, In the cities of Mesopotamia, just as the Rephaim are kings in the cities of Palestine, Agbashan, for instance, or for example. In the book of Genesis, for example, in the story of Dinah and Shechem, it is apparent that the races of Canaan were accustomed to intermarrying with one another for the sake of peace and commerce. So it is not a stretch to imagine that they had been engaged in such practices for many, many centuries, as it is also evident in the surviving archaeological records of those ancient nations, where we see them very often, where we see the the kings of city-states taking the daughters of the kings of another city-state to wife in the interest of peace. They would intermarry for the purpose of peace and commerce. And they would never really have peace, but they assumed that they would if they intermarried with their neighbors. They assumed they would have peace. So they did it all the time, as a matter of course.
1: As we have also... uh, all a part of Islam as well, isn't it? The the no racial barriers and all that is the same Jewish invention.
0: Yes, Islam actually, in theory, in the writings of Islam, racial barriers are absolutely prohibited. In practice, I know that Iraqi and Iranian Muslims are extremely prejudiced against black Muslims. They actually hate them. But that, that's a—that—that's um, more or less a sort of racism that's prohibited by the Quran, even though it exists in practice. And that doesn't mean that those Iraqi and Iranian Muslims aren't already part Negro. But then again, in my own lifetime, I've known Sicilians that were part Negro who hated blacks even though they were part Negro, and admitted it. They admitted they weren't white, and they still hated, they hated blacks. They despised them because they're not any longer white because of blacks. So it, it kind of works two ways. <coughs> so as we have already discussed, Esau took Canaanite wives, and his wives very likely had the blood of Cain, and the Nephilim flowing in their veins. Esau then moved to Mount Seir, which was also called Mount Horus in Scripture. And it was a settlement of the Hurrians, or Horites, who were a Canaanite tribe. The Hebrew word is sometimes spelled as Hivites in Scripture as the letter for Resh, or the letter R, is sometimes mistaken for the letter for Vav, or the letter V. So sometimes you'll see Hivites in scripture. Hivites really didn't exist in history. The Hivites are actually, that's a mistake for Horites. So the descendants of Esau, as well as those of Ishmael, and this is evident in scripture, had all mingled together with the Canaanites of the land, which later became known as Edom. We read in Genesis chapter 14, before Esau was even born, and in the fourteenth year came Tedor Leomer. He was a, a, a king of Elam, which is Persia, and the kings that were with him, and smote the Rephames in Ashtaroth-Carneum, and the Zuzins in Ham, the roving creatures. And Ham, there is a reference to the area of Arabia and Mesopotamia that was controlled by Nimrod, where he established his first empire. He was a son of Ham. And Ham isn't limited to Africa certainly not, Ham, or, or more more specifically, Cush, who was a son of Ham, and Nimrod was the son of Cush, they controlled a good portion of Mesopotamia and Arabia, all the way to Beyond the time of Moses, because that's the Kush where Moses had gone in Arabia to take his wife, who was by race a Midianite. But that was technically the land of Cush because it was under control of the empire that was first established by Nimrod. So the Zuzims, who are roving creatures, are described as being in Ham. And the Emims in Shava, Shava Kirithan. And the Horites in their Mount Seir, unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to Enmishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. Now the Israelites would later contend with all of these same people with whom Leamer had fought. Years later, as it is recorded in Genesis chapter 32, Esau had taken his Hittite wives and his one Ishmaelite wife and settled in Mount Seir among the Horites. In Genesis chapter 36, we read, The sons of Seir the Horite, who inhabited the land, and then they are listed, and they're included in the genealogy of Esau. So the Edomites had been thoroughly mingled and continued to mingle with the Canaanites, the Kenites, the Nephilim or the Rephaim, and what other, whatever other races some of the unidentifiable, unidentifiable tribes in Palestine may have originated from. And those unidentifiable tribes are the Zuzims, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, and the Perizzites mentioned in Genesis chapters 14 and 15, all of whom have no genealogy with Adam or Noah. So who are they? We'll never know who they are. Now some bible commentators try to imagine that perizite means villager or or kenazite means this sort of people and they're not really tribes but they are tribes and every time they're mentioned it's within a context that shows that they are tribes they are unidentifiable tribes they're not merely sorts of people
1: So, so bill it's interesting that um Kush, which would have been Arabia, and you know, you know, the original Kush, and pushing up into Assyria, that the, the first empire ended up being becoming uh, the first mingled nation, Arabia. That that's essentially what an empire does to your nation, right?
0: Absolutely, that's all. That's what it does every single time.
1: You, Be- you rise up, but then you fall harder down. Right.
0: The Assyrians later on, and the Babylonians after them, the Babylonians of the time of the books of Kings and Chronicles, they were not these same people. They were Casti or Cassites, and, and they're called Chaldeans in history. And the Chaldeans, it's actually from a Hebrew word, Casti the Kassites of far northern Mesopotamia, who dwelt around the ancient homeland of Abraham. It may have been the people of Arphaxad or other Shemites. So, Chaldeans. They were the Chaldeans of Babylon. They had come and invaded Babylon at an early time and taken it from the Cushites, from Ham. So they're the Babylonians of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and they and the Assyrians simply referred to all of the people who were in the desert all the way to the Mediterranean Sea as Amuru, which is the Assyrian name for them. And Amuru is the Amorites of the Old Testament, the Canaanite tribe called Amorites, so the Assyrians simply called all those people Amuru, no matter what tribe they were from, that was a general term for them all. And that, that's what, what we see in the scripture. Once we understand how certain terms are used in archaeology, what we see in the scripture is verified in archaeology. It's verified in the inscriptions, the ancient inscriptions that have been discovered these past 200 years.
1: So all of this is historical. They must have understood that they were bastards, right?
0: Well, yes, that they were. There was no egalitarianism among ancient nations. If you were an Assyrian, you would despise anybody of any other nation and consider him a bastard or or a non-person, just like the ancient Egyptians. If you weren't an Egyptian, you weren't a person, and and we've discussed that in, probably in this same series. If you were not an Egyptian, you were not even a person. And even the founders of, of the American Republic, that they didn't consider the Negro slaves to be people. They considered them six-tenths of a person only for the purpose of congressional apportionment for the white Southerners did they consider a Negro slave to be six-tenths of a person, but not a whole person. They were never people. They were never people until they were, that we were demanded that they become people with the 14th Amendment, which is artificial, because they're not people today. They don't even act like people. They act like animals. That's another story. I'm sorry. So John the Baptist, with all this background, Connecting the descendants of Esau to this serpent of, of Genesis chapter three and and the, these Nephilim or fallen ones, which are the fallen angels that the serpent is identified as is identified with with all of this background, John the Baptist, when certain of the Pharisees and Sadducees had come out to see what he was doing, had said to them, as it 's recorded in Matthew chapter three. O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The wrath was coming upon these men regardless of what they did. John had called them a Ganema of vipers, which, and we've discussed this term often, and we're going to discuss it further here today, Ganema is properly offspring of vipers. That is not a reference to the men, but rather John asserted that their parents were vipers. So Ganema, in that instance, in that context, may have been better translated as race. John went on to challenge them to do good, just as Yahweh had challenged Cain to do good. And as Paul of Tarsus and Christ himself had each challenged these same adversaries to do good. But evidently, they could never do good. So John said to them, Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meet for repentance. Of course, they couldn't do that. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And this last line is also misunderstood. Of course, God could bring forth children of Abraham from stones. And Edomites could claim to be children of Abraham. But that would not make the Edomites or the children brought up from stones, that would not make them children of the covenant promises. The covenant promises are assured only to the children of Jacob. And Paul explains that later in Romans 9, Romans chapter 9, and again in Galatians chapter 3. So speaking further in that same place, John the Baptist warned them again, and he said, And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And later in Matthew, referring to his adversaries. Christ had the following exchange with his own disciples. Then came his disciples. This is Matthew chapter 15, and it's verse 12. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard the saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Therefore the lines become evident. There are plants which God had planted, and they bring forth good fruit. But there are plants which Yahweh God did not plant. And they shall be rooted up, for which reason John had attested, that now also, John the Baptist, that now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees, not to individual branches, but to the root. Therefore, every tree which brings forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. The Edomites being a bastard race, could not repent. They had no opportunity to ever be Christians, although they were challenged to do good. And therefore their destiny is in the lake of fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, because they are all bastards. In Luke chapter 7, the apostle later explained that the Pharisees and lawyers didn't come to John the Baptist to be baptized, but they had rejected his baptism. Rather, they only wanted to inquire as to what authority it was by which he was baptizing. In, John, in Matthew chapter 23, for example, or in Mark chapter 7, Christ exposed the Pharisees as legalists who added many of their own regulations to the law so that they could tightly control the people. They still have that same trait today. They act in that same way to this very day. Which is why, after the Jews took over America with the Federal Reserve, right along with that, we got the graduated income tax and 50 billion pages of federal regulations from 50,000 federal agencies. And I might be slightly exaggerating, but it may as well be 50 billion pages, and it may as well be 50,000 agencies, and they crush the average man under the burden of their legalistic governance,
1: just like Christ told them. Yeah, it's like a web. Sorry. I was going to say, like, they, they make this web that you're just trapped in and you can't get out of all these laws and taxes and hidden taxes, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. It is a web. And and if they want to find you guilty of something, they have so many laws and regulations, it's easy for them to find anybody guilty of something. It doesn't matter if it's a, if it's a substantial crime or not. If they want to find you guilty of something, they will. So Christ told them that they lay heavy burdens, they bind heavy burdens, and lay them upon men, and they move not one finger to bear those burdens themselves, to help men move the burdens with which they are laden. And that's true. I mean, if you want to pay a Jew to go do your taxes, you can go down to H&R Block or one of those other agencies, and they'll do your taxes for you. They'll fill out all the complicated forms for you. Because a lot of men can't even wrap their heads around all the regulations and all the forms. But then if the Jew does it wrong and you don't pay your taxes, you're the one that's going to pay the penalty. (laughs) So you're screwed either way. And that's what they do. And they did it in the New Testament and they do it today. It's the same pattern. It's the same people behind that pattern. So Christ spoke likewise in Matthew chapter 12, speaking once again to his adversaries, where he said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. Oh, generation of vipers, now that's that word genema again, it means offspring, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Now, a man makes a tree corrupt by marrying outside of his race, but can keep it good if he himself is born of God and marries a woman who is of the same. So we read in 1 Peter in chapter 1, in verse 22, Your souls, having been purified in the obedience of the truth, for brotherly love without hypocrisy, from of a pure heart you should love one another earnestly, being engendered, and I could have written born there, this is the Christogenian New Testament, or I could have written conceived, being engendered from above, not from corruptible parentage, but from incorruptible, by the word of Yahweh who lives and abides, since all flesh is as grass, and all of its glory as a flower of grass. And the grass withers, and the flower falls off. But that which is spoken by Yahweh abides for eternity. Now, this is that which is spoken, which is announced to you. And of course, all flesh dies. But men with the Spirit of God have everlasting spirits, while the others are twice dead, plucked up by the roots as the Apostle Jude described them. So when their tree is cut down, they are just as dead in the spirit as they would be in the flesh. The word which we translate in that passage as parentage, in that passage from Peter, is spora, where the usual word in the New Testament for seed as the King James translation also translated spora, the usual word is sperma. The difference is significant, as in Greek, sperma refers to offspring or descendants, while spora, according to Liddell and Scott, means a sowing of seed, of children from this origin. So it means origin birth, procreation, or begetting. And therefore, we prefer to translate the word as parentage in this context because parentage is the origin of people. Parentage is origin. Parentage is the sowing of the seed as opposed to the seed itself. So it should be translated as parentage here. While the Roman Catholic and other churches pervert the plain meanings of these words, sperma, spora, we would assert that the apostles used them in the manner in which Greek listeners or Greek readers understood them. To refer to actual parents and actual children, it is ridiculous to think that in the time of the apostles, These words referred to believers of some religion or philosophy. Throughout scripture, the apostles used the word sperma only in the sense of children, physical children or offspring. And the churches are lying when they claim otherwise. Paul makes that very clear in Romans chapter 4, in Romans chapter 9, and elsewhere in his epistles. The word genema, to contrast that with spora and sperma, the word genema is also offspring when it is used of people, but in a different way than sperma. While sperma is seed, genema is a term which describes that which is produced or born, as a child. And its ultimate root word is the verb ginomahi, which is most literally to come into being. So if you think about people and that which is produced from people, you have children. So a Genema is an offspring or a child in that sense. So where Christ asked of his adversaries, for example, in Matthew chapter 23, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? He was calling them, he was calling they themselves serpents, but by calling them the offspring of vipers, or that which is produced of vipers, using that word genema, he was calling their parents vipers, where generation may have been better translated as race. Ye serpents, ye race of vipers, which is what it means. Because if vipers have children, and those children are vipers. If vipers have offspring, any offspring are vipers, which is what you would expect, that's a race, right? It's not a generation of all people living in at one time who are vipers or who act like vipers. It's parents that are vipers having children that are vipers. That's not a single generation, that's a race. The typical Greek word for race is Genea or its close synonym genos, both of which primarily refer to race, stock, or family, as they are defined by Ludell and Scott. These words are also closely related to Genomahi and Genema in their etymology, and are the ultimate sources for English words such as genus, gene, genealogy, and genetic. Christ used these terms Genea and Genos often, and he meant them in that same manner. So in Luke chapter 11, he told his adversaries that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation, according to King James, but there it should be race. Of this race, and I'll explain why. From the blood of Abel, unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be be required of this genea, or race. And of course, a generation. In the sense in which we use that word today. A generation cannot be held responsible for the death of a man thousands of years before that generation was born. But in medieval English, the word generation, which was much closer in meaning to the Greek words genea and "genema," and did refer to a race, for which reason it is also similar in spelling because it also came from those same Greek words, Ganeema and Geneah. Only the race of Cain could be held responsible for the blood of Abel. And they are also responsible for the blood of the prophets, down through Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and even the blood of Christ himself, which they admitted when they said his blood is on us and our children.
1: In yeah, Luke it only chapter makes ten, sense if he speaking to descendants of Cain, right? And that they've been in the shadows all throughout time, killing our prophets, right?
0: Absolutely. And that's evident in the Old Testament. It's evident in the story of Doug the Edomite. It's evident in the story of Jezebel. It's evident in in the accounts of the Baal priests, and, and the time of Elijah, it's evident in the Old Testament, even if the details as to how the prophets died are not always provided. It's evident in the life of Jeremiah, even though they failed to kill him. They tried like hell to kill him, and that's spelled out in the pages of the book of Jeremiah. In Luke chapter 10, we see Christ use the word serpent to describe his enemies once again, after he had sent out 70 disciples, and they returned to him. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, this is his response to their mention of devils, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. That directly connects these devils to the fallen angels, and Genesis. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions. That directly connects the serpent and that old serpent from Genesis to the enemies of Christ in the New Testament. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So not only does this passage describe the enemies of Christ as serpents and scorpions, but it connects them to the fall of Satan from heaven, which is later described in more detail in Revelation chapter 12. So when the apostle Peter had warned in chapter 5 of his first epistle, To be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. He was talking about Edomite Jews. And when the apostle James warned in chapter four of his epistle to resist the devil and he will flee from you, he was also talking about Edomite Jews. By the third and fourth centuries, the Roman Catholic Church had already been subverted by biblical interpretations that were provided by Edomite Jews, so they never got the truth because it was corrupted from the beginning. All these terms were reinterpreted to mean something other than the plain words with which and and the plain statements with which in which they're used in Scripture and by the apostles. They've all been misinterpreted to mean something different than they meant when the apostles and when Christ uttered them. And while the tree of the knowledge of good and evil spread its branches far more widely in ancient times than the Bible even records, so we have all these non-white races, which are not of Adam, which Yahweh did not create, Esau was chosen to represent that tree from the time when Isaac was placed on the altar, just as Jacob was chosen to inherit the promises made to Abraham, through whom would also ultimately be fulfilled the very first promises made to Adam. So the story hasn't changed from Genesis chapter 3, but now the parties are represented by Jacob and Esau. And we see Esau as the advocate for all the other races against the white race. It's happening today with immigration. It happened in the 1950s with civil rights. It happened in the 1850s with abolition. It happened in the 7th century with Arabs and in the 10th century with Turks. It's the same the same story, the same pattern over and over and over again the methods might be different the context might be different but it's the same players doing the same thing
1: yep trying to do what they did in the Garden of Eden destroy the white Adamic race right, it's it's exactly the same and uh, we're getting towards the end now and and hopefully uh, people will wake up and realise what's going on so they can fight back right
0: Sooner or later, and the best way to fight back is to repent and turn to Christ. Because in that, we're assured victory. That's the only way we're assured victory. To repent and turn to Christ, then we have the tools to fight back. Without turning to Christ, and without understanding what we're saying here, there are no tools. You'll never be successful. Because the Bible is true.
1: Yeah, and you realize all personal feuds are just pointless and that you you just have to um, push them aside and just focus on uh, obeying Yahweh, love your race. And that's the only way, right? Through Christ. Oh, but
0: I know a good Jew. He helped me once. (laughs) Sucker. He was only ingratiating you so that he could use you for something else. Even if it's only to say that. That I know a good Jew. He helped me once jews give charity to promote themselves so that they could control others that's the only reason they give charity so personal opinions mean nothing because they can never be that they can never counteract the truth the truth is always going to win in the end okay thank you for being here
1: have faith in christ right and actually believe what he says And, and only then when people actually realize that they're all evil can um, you know we come together essentially?
0: Absolutely, that's absolutely true. If you're a Christian, have faith in Christ and just believe what He said and take it at face value, not with these church, crazy church interpretations that fathers are only um, philosophers and and children are only believers, but which is how the church interprets it all—that they reduce Christ to just a philosopher and His children to mere believers in in a lot of ways that i mean they may not they may not put it explicitly in that way but that's the end result of it that children are just the children of god are just followers of christ followers of jesus of, of a fake jesus who never meant what he said who never said what he meant he he's using the, these um agricultural terms Because wheat, after a zillion generations, never turns into broccoli or asparagus. It always stays wheat until somebody bastardizes the seed and it becomes useless. And it becomes something different. It always stays wheat. Men are like that too, until they're bastardized by mixing and wheat may not be able to crossbreed with broccoli but a man unfortunately can crossbreed with negroes but the result is a bastard it's no longer a child of god when we're, when we're going to get that that that's how people are turned into bad trees or that's how people are maintained as good trees the trees which Yahweh God planted, all these other races are bastards. I should say the tree which Yahweh God planted, which is the tree of life, because the entire Adamic race is rooted in that. And that's the only race that he took credit for creating. And they were all white, as we've already discussed from Genesis chapter 10. Okay.
1: Yes, yeah, th- th- thanks for having me, Bill. And, um, yeah, look forward to next week. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of European people. Thank you. Praise Yahweh, and good night.